Never has this been more appropriate to talk about than in this current political climate where there's so much divisiveness. That's the one thing I have such a problem with during this time uh, whenever elections come up. Uh, we get bombarded from both sides about people being angry at each other, and that's something that breaks my heart. Um, I need you to look at the fill-in-the-blank in front of you and understand that I believe this to the core. This will be something that bleeds through our ministry. This will be something that bleeds from the pulpit because it comes out of the pages of Scripture. It is this. At our deepest core, we must value people. At our deepest core, we must value people. We cannot set people aside for agendas. We cannot set individuals aside for large groups. At our deepest level, we must love people intensely. If you don't love people, you have yet to walk in full Christianity. We've got to love people. That's what it all hinges on. The law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, hang on to very clear concepts. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? Loving your neighbor as yourself. We must love people passionately. But we don't do that real well. There's so much conflict. There's so many things vying for our attention. There's so many distractions. There's so much lobbying for our interest. And there's so many things that creep up inside that steal away our love for other people. We must become ferocious protectors of our heart and make sure that we do not allow the enemy to come in and screw that up. We have to love people. Amen? Amen. Let's dive into this. Now, as we jump into Matthew 18, 1, I'm just going to read the first verse here out of the uh, book of Matthew, and then we'll pray for the word. But after that, I'm going to dive into... This story, this first teaching, by combining in two other accounts, Mark and Luke as well. So you'll have a little bit of a difficult time following just in Matthew. Perhaps you may just want to listen. But as we begin in Matthew, just one verse sets the tone. Matthew 18:1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Seems like an odd question. You think... Are they really arguing about who's the, do they mean like in general or do they mean like amongst them? People don't really do that, right? People don't really compete with each other, do they? No way. You don't really look at your neighbor and wonder whether or not you are better than they are, right? Nobody does that. I certainly, what, I'm not comparing myself to you, right? Where, where I'm wondering if you're better at this Christian thing than I am. Do I do stuff like, of course I do, Right. So I'm a human being and I'm all screwed up and I'm messing it all up because I keep getting based in this competition concept. No, that's absolutely out of line. It's wrong. And we keep falling into the same trap. It was no different for the disciples. Let's see what Jesus had to say. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes and illuminate scripture to us that we might learn, that we might embrace, that we might transform because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is how it would be if the three of them were teaching us all at the same time, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It would sound like this. Then they, meaning the disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum, which is kind of his home base. And an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So this is not in general. This was, how would we order the twelve? In other words, you got 
Peter arguing with John, who's arguing with Philip, who's arguing with Andrew, and they're trying to structure it out as to which one of them is going to be closest to Jesus. Now, how embarrassing and immature is that, right? But they did that, and these are Jesus' core group, all right? When Jesus came into the house, he asked them, hey, what were you guys arguing about on the road? In other words, they're being really quiet about it, and they're trying not to get him involved. Okay, but it says, but they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. At that time, finally, they decided to come to Jesus. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, all right, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in other words, just settle this. Just tell Andrew he's behind me. That's all I care. Just as long as Judas knows where he's at, we're cool. Sitting down, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, meaning knowing the motive behind all this, called the 12 to him and he said, come here. If anyone wants to be first, he has to be the very last, the very servant of all. Now, that, of course, is a paradigm shift for them. And we've taught on that many times, so I don't want to go in depth on that. But while their mind is spinning on that, he called a little child and had him stand beside him. Now, tradition says that was St. Ignatius. He went off to create this really amazing ministry. It's probably just a kid. Okay, everyone wants to make it something bigger than it is. He grabs a child because all children are precious to Jesus. He brings a child, has him stand next to him. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, what does that seem to indicate? It means they're going the wrong direction. The fact that we're having this conversation means they were in the wrong arena. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what, what does he mean? What does he mean? I mean, there's a lot of things about kids we love. There's a lot about kids, things about kids that are totally irritating, right? I mean, there's things about kids that you go, wow, that's pretty naive. And there's things about kids you go, wow, I wish I was more like that. What are we talking about? Well, there, I'm sure we could talk about a lot of things. Jesus is going to center in on the humility of children. But one commentary gave me this incredible insight that I just had to stop for a second and get completely convicted. He said this. He said, children completely own and are okay with the concept that they are dependent on someone. How come we're not? We have this whole thing. John has to write this whole chapter 15. You've got to abide in Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he literally has to make an argument to try to convince us it's a good idea to remain attached to Jesus. And we keep breaking away and doing our own thing. But children know they're dependent. They don't sit there and fight the whole concept. No, mom, let me get this one. Let me get this bill. Okay? She's like, you're three. What are you talking about? All right? The little three-year-old's completely content, bought into the system. It's kind of like, I need a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm not getting it, obviously. So I would need you to get me that sandwich for me. Okay, there's a certain ownership of the idea that I cannot keep moving forward unless someone is making sure I'm okay. This is literally how we are with God, but we keep fighting against it and trying to pretend like it's not true. The only things you're ever going to do of value in this life are because you are attached to Jesus Christ. Quit trying to live your life independently. Why is it that prayer is always our last resort? You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, well, now that I've done everything, I guess I'll pray about it. it we have this such resistant, independent spirit. He said, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then Mark says, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child, <clears throat> one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. 
For he who is least among you, he is greatest. What do you think the point is of this teaching? The point is simply this. If you're going to buy into competition, it's going to screw up your relationships. Don't you get that? As long as you're matching up against someone else, there's a battle to be had. If you are now partnering or seeing everybody else as a ministry field, there is no competition. There's just partnership. You understand? We've got to let go of the battle. Moves to the next thing. Jesus just continues on. He said, now, let me warn you on a few things. He said, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But, and now Jesus gets really intense. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Pretty intense, pretty clear. Yeah? Okay, let me set this up for a moment. The Bible uses little children in two different ways. It uses it in a literal way, little children, because children are precious to God. You're going to hear that over and over today. And then the second thing is new believers or those that are seeking and are brand new to the ideas of Jesus. Are we all clear on that? They're used both ways. So when you start applying this, apply them both ways. So if you cause one of these little ones to sin, go ahead and kill yourself. That's what he just said. How extreme is that? He used the term millstone. Now, there's two different types of grinding millstones that were used in that day. There was a personal hand-cranked one that women could grind their own grain right there at home. It was a small uh, millstone that a person could lift up and move. Then there was what was called the donkey stone. That was this one. It's such an enormous stone, and they built them in Capernaum. They cut them out of rock in Capernaum where they're at, so it's rather fitting that they would have been laying around and Jesus would have said, hey, better be you grab one of these, put it around your neck, dive into the ocean. It was such a huge stone that a donkey's strength had to pull it just for it to crush the amount of grain that it was crushing. He said, grab a rope, grab that, sling it around your neck, dive in. You're done. That's how severe God is about protecting the innocent. So let me ask you a quick question just to spin this and ruin your day. I want you to think back to all the people that you have influenced throughout your life towards evil. You were the first one that initiated them into it. Think about it. All the times that you thought it was cool, you thought it was a great idea to bring them into something they've never tried before. Isn't that what we all like doing? Isn't that the best thing about it? You're sitting at a party. All of a sudden, you're the one that has the weed and you know a bunch of people haven't smoked pot before. It's really cool to get them stoned for the first time. Hey, that's really cool. Watch them. Oh, look, they're coughing. They're freaking out. Oh, I think they're going to throw up, right? Then all of a sudden, you end up going through your life. You get off the bandwagon. They end up in rehab. Well, that was cool. That was really nice of you. I appreciate that. Think through all the times that you kept pushing people's limits and boundaries and trying to get them to go further than they would have ever gone on their own. This is what Jesus is talking about. He said, really? You're going to take the little kids and you're going to initiate them into violence. You're going to be the first one to hit them. Really? That's what you're going to do. So they, in turn, will grow up and hit their children. This is what you think is okay because they're your kids, right? So you get to do whatever you want to them, right? Wrong. Do not damage the children. And if you want to play that game with early Christians, right? They're brand new believers. They're excited about the word. They happen to connect with you at church first. Uh Uh-oh. They come into church. They don't know anybody. They hang out with you. All of a sudden, you make them a psycho Pharisee. Good job. Now they're walking away from Jesus, 
and they're running on their way to hell. Here's the point. Do not mess with the little ones. When they come walking in, I don't care if they're 93 years old and they're brand new to Jesus. Take care of the little ones. Always shield them. Always watch over them. And be very careful what you're initiating them into. Jesus said, you mess with them, you mess with me. Might as well just end it now. Look at the next phrase. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. In other words, of course we're in this broken world and we're going to get new temptations every day. And yes, of course we're going to try messed up things and hurt people. I get that. But does it always have to be us? Woe to the man through whom they come. Oh, it's going to come, but does it have to come through you? Are you the one that's going to damage him? Oh, that shouldn't be. Someone's going to damage him. Just make sure it's not you. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Okay, let's stop. Is the point of that that there's a bunch of one-eyed people in heaven? Right? I'd love to see the glory. I just can't. No, it's not what it means. What's his point? His point is to try to bust everyone on the excuse of, you know what, that's just how I am. It's just how I am. Okay, so I got a bad temper. So I go around, I hit people. That's just who I am. You know what? Change. Stop doing it. Well, I can't. It's too hard. You know what? I guess you got to get extreme, don't you? Dive in, cut it out of your life. Find some way to sever that garbage out of your life. Make the effort be different because Jesus has empowered you to do so. You'd never be able to excise it without Jesus. It says this. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you, their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. Okay. This is one of the major texts on why people believe in guardian angels. You guys ever seen the bumper stickers? Okay. That's why. Don't what? Don't drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. Okay. I was driving behind that yesterday. Okay. Apparently their angels fly really slow. (laughs) But anyway, praise God they were consistent. (laughs) So I passed them and said, my angels are faster and I took off. (laughs) But anyway, what's his point? His point is this. He goes, do you understand how big and bad these angels are? Do you understand how extreme these angels are? Do you know how powerful these angels are and when you got bodyguards like that watching over little kids are you really going to mess with the little kids really because this big old bodyguard standing over the back of them just going go ahead try to mess with that kid i will take you out i stand right before the father i'm staring at god almighty in his glory and you're going to mess with my child i don't think so see in that day and age children were property children had no rights they were basically a useless element of society until they became of an age of being beneficial Jesus said, no, they are valuable right now. And he will do a lot to make his point. Then Jesus told this parable. Now, I'm going to include a little bit of Luke because Luke does this in a pack of three. This is the first of two other parables that follow it that you may be familiar with. So it's a very famous one. He said, let me tell you how much I value the individual. Everyone seems to say, God doesn't care about me. Yeah, he does. Well, he's more concerned about all the people in church. He's not concerned about me by myself in my apartment. Yeah, he is. Look at this story. 
And I'll tie in Luke's passage. Then Jesus told them this parable. What do you think? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. If a man owes a hundred owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety nine on the hills in the open country and go to look for the one that wandered off until he finds it? If he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. I tell you the truth. He's happier about that one sheep than about the ninety nine that did not wander off. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Here's what he's fighting against. We get in our big club, right? Our big church club. And we all talk about being righteous and we kind of go, it's really cool that nobody's rocking the boat. And nobody has any problems. So if you got any problems, keep it quiet. Then all of a sudden someone goes off and sins. You go, good riddance. I'm glad you're gone. You were too much of a problem anyway. Jesus said, whoa, hold on a second. Because right now I'm going to put you guys on pause. I'm going to go hang out with that guy. And he walks away from everyone hanging out in the huddle. He said, I will go find them. They are precious to me. Stop writing people off. Don't just write them off. Well, they'll never get saved. They'll never do this. You don't know that. You stay in prayer. You stay in intercession for those people because Jesus is still hunting them down. Now, Luke tells three stories. He tells about the lady who lost what? One of her ten coins. Do you remember that parable? And she couldn't find it. And then she had to sweep the house clean and she found it. Then there's the story of the sheep that wandered off that we just read. And then there's what? The famous story of the prodigal son. What are the differences between those three stories? Well, if you're a type of person that's like a coin and you're just lost, lost, coin have no way of getting home. You understand? They just have to sit until they're found. Coins just kind of, I'm a coin. What am I going to do? Hanging out in the drawer. I didn't ask to be here. Right? Can't go home. Well, then you just got to be found. That is just people that are flat out apart from God and there's no influence in their lives. You know what? God will hunt them down and reveal himself to them. Then what about the sheep? Those are just stupid people. Okay, those are people where, you know what, you have all kinds of influence. You could completely hang out with God. There's all types of opportunity to be in fellowship and everything else. And you're just too moronic to figure it out. So you just wander off in your own sin. It's kind of like, hey, look, a flashy light. And you kind of just wander off. Okay, and at that point, what does God do? He has to go, you know what? I know you're not coming home because right when you do realize that you're a moron, you have no way of getting back. Because then you're like, wait, did I take a left or a right? I don't really remember where I'm at. And I'm not going to find my way home because I'm lost. That's the one that God goes out and has to hunt you down and then pick you up on his shoulders and go, we're going home now. But what if your problem is just flat out rebellion? There's a story for you. It's called the prodigal son. Guess how far God went to go get him to the edge of the property. Do you remember? So he'd walk out right up to the edge of the property. He'd look and he'd go, you back yet? That's called boundaries. Everybody ever heard that word? That's where you're being a punk. You're being a rebel. And you know darn well that your life is in Christ and you're living like garbage. And you've got to go off and the whole time God will stand back and go, really? You need to go do that? All right, I'm going to wait right here. You home yet? You home yet? How's that eating pig slop? You home yet? Oh, now you're home. Okay, fantastic. Runs up, embraces you. Says, listen, you know why I couldn't chase you into the distant country, right? Because then you would have never learned, and I would have been 
constantly enabling you. No, I'm not going to do that. Are you coming home today? Then let's come home. See, the idea is that God has so much passionate love for the individual, the hurting, the sinner, the people like me that are ignorant. At all times, he's loving all of us and he goes and finds us in different ways. For some of us, however, we need to come home. And we have two feet, we have a map, and we know the way. It's time to come home. He picks up the next story with this. He said, uh, it's not only the idea of you personally being lost inside your heart or personally rebellious, but you know what? If I'm going to have you guys come together as a team, as a family, we're going to have sibling rivalry. We're going to fight. Okay, that's just a fact. So let's talk about how we're going to handle it. Uh, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. All right? Sounds pretty simple. It would be really neat if that always worked out that way. Okay? But here's one thing he did not say. When your brother sins against you, go run around and tell everybody that you know, and then tell them why that person is bad, and then have them be your best friend by telling you how cool you are. That's what he didn't say. Keep it between the two of you, because you know what happens? I would say 75% of the time in these scenarios, miscommunication. And then you went off and created more chaos that you've got to go clean up. Okay, the first thing you need to do is try to clear up the air and go, hold on a second. Did you mean to rip my head off? Because I've got to be honest with you. You were killing me today. You were so offensive. Is that what you meant? And a lot of times they're going to go, what are you talking about? No, I didn't mean to hurt you. What? No, I love you. There's no way I meant to. You're like, I must have totally heard it wrong. It's like, oh, well, no, that's not what I meant. And it's cleared up. But if you run around and cause everybody else grief, then even though you're okay, they're still harboring bitterness towards that person. Be very careful on that. If it doesn't work, if that person goes, yep, you heard me right, I hate you. Okay, then there's step two, okay? It says, if you will not listen, take two or three, two, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's an Old Testament concept. You bring other people with you to help monitor the encounter, meaning they're supposed to hold you accountable, too. Because if you bring in solid, wise witnesses and they're sitting in the room and you start talking this out with the other person and they go, hey, real quick, buddy, you're the problem. They're actually OK. They didn't harm you. You're the problem. They're supposed to be wise enough to do that. It says, if that doesn't work, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? The church. That's the only, the second time that the word church is ever used in all of the Gospels. Why? Because the church technically doesn't get rolling until Pentecost. So we're talking about the church before the church is around. He's talking about a group of believers. So he'd say, listen, bring in the authority structure that you have. Let's say you're in a small group. Well, you're a small group leader. You can then bring it before the small group leader and say, can you please sort this out with me? Can you please listen to us about what's going on? Because we're at a total impasse. Or you bring it before the elders here at the church, and we're supposed to examine that and be fair and impartial and take a look at it and tell you about God's word. Well, if he refuses to listen even to the church, what? Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Who wrote this book? Matthew. What did he do for a living? Tax collector. There he goes. He goes, just treat him like you did me before I was your buddy. Okay, you obviously know how to do that because you treated me like terribly. Okay, but what does the point mean? How are we supposed to treat non-believers with love and respect and honor and seek to draw them in? Our job is never to close the door or close the book on someone. 
It's always for the purpose of reconciliation. Even church discipline, which is incredibly ineffective in today's culture, so we don't do it very much because you merely just hop to another church and that's not effective. We need to realize that in church discipline, the point is not to cast them away forever. It's to let them know, listen, if you remove yourself from all the blessings and the protection and the comfort that exists here, it's harder. You want to return. That was the point of church discipline is to get them to return. There's always a point of reconciliation. But he said this. I tell you the truth. Speaking of church authority, verse 18. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's ambassador language. That's judge language. The Supreme Court of the United States is not supposed to make up their own rules. They're supposed to interpret the rules that exist and then legislate on those. The church is not supposed to make up its own rules and traditions. It's supposed to legislate what is in Scripture. Therefore, what we're binding and loosing is the idea of what have we seen in Scripture, what is true, what is God's Word, and we make that so here. In the same way, the corporate body has other amazing elements. Verse 19, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Now, is that just a blanket promise? No, it's a loaded term. We know that there's a bunch of stuff about prayer that we need to understand. But even in the realm of authority, if there's two witnesses, right, and you're asking God's will to be done in this situation, God will be there. Why? Because he believes in the corporate body. But let me use a quick analogy or a, a quick application of this. Let's say you're going to pray about something. When you're home alone in your room, in your prayer closet, do you ever pray selfish prayers? Yeah, I do all the time. Mostly against you. No, but anyway. What happens if you pray that prayer with a partner? All of a sudden you feel terrible about praying selfish prayers and it purifies your prayers because you could start out and you would say lord help me to be have a, have a job at the church lord i would love to work for the church help me to have a job at the church now try to pray that with the staff of the church who's going to get fired so you get a job <laughs> right now all of a sudden you're like well that's kind of selfish sorry i probably shouldn't ask that it purifies your motives when you pray with someone else you stop praying solely selfish and it makes you think of the greater context and then it says, what, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. In other words, I don't play the numbers game. Do you understand that in every small group where there's two believers, every accountability group, God is there in your midst. He is there operating in the body of Christ, no matter how small it is. In that day and age, you couldn't even have a Jewish synagogue unless you had eight to ten male Jews. Only then would you have an established synagogue. Jesus said, we're going just two by two. If there's two of you that come together, I'm present in a totally different way. Then Peter came up and he's like, all right, there's a bunch of offenses. Everybody's offending everybody. I got a story about offenses. What about forgiveness? Right. Where are the limits to that? I mean, if someone just keeps offending me and I bring people to them and they keep offending me, what am I supposed to do about that? So it says, Peter came to Jesus, verse 21, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? What, like up to seven times? Now, he's being really generous because the rabbi view is three. The current rabbi view was you forgive someone three times. After that, cut them off. Never forgive them again. Shut them down. 
Well, so he's like, all right, I'll double that, add one. I'll use the perfect number. That'll make me look good. So do you think I should forgive him like seven times? What did Jesus say? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. 70 times seven is 490. That is the perfect number multiplied times a perfect number. It's the idea of infinite. Infinite. So he said there's no limit. You must always forgive. Well, then they're blown away. And they're thinking, there's no way I'm going to do that. You have no idea, God, what they're doing. You have no idea how they have harmed me. You have no idea what I've gone through. He said, really? I got a story for you. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. That word is actually slaves. As he began the settlement, a man who owned him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That is an amazing number. A talent is not a specific item. Some of them say it was worth between 56 and 80 pounds of gold. How much is a pound of gold worth? Well, here's the idea. It was millions and millions of dollars. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before the king. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, some people say that's three days wages, three months wages. Either way, it's a small amount. His, uh, he grabbed him, began to choke him, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees, just like he had done earlier, begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which he could never do. That's called eternal that's how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. What's his point? His point is, really, after all I've forgiven you, you're really holding stuff against people? Really? You just, in, you just violated. You sinned against an infinite God. I don't care what someone has done to you. It's always finite. You have sinned against an infinite, almighty, all-holy God. And you're really running around and beating everyone else up? After what I've forgiven you for. Well, you don't know what they did. I know what you did. And not only do you know what you did, I know what you're going to do. You don't even know that. And I've forgiven it all. And you're really going to run around and hold everyone else accountable because it's fair. You want me to give you what's fair? Or do you want me to give you what's merciful? We're not talking about fair anymore. We're talking about mercy. And don't worry, they're not going to get away with it. Because they only have two choices. Either I die for it or they die for it. Those are their two choices. Someone will die for what they've done. It'll either be me or it will be them. Eternally. Do you understand how that works? You do not have to worry about people getting away with stuff. Nobody's getting away with anything. The disciple, oh, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Again, large crowds followed him. And as was his custom, Mark says, he taught them and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That sounds like a weird question. Why would you just throw that one out there? Because there was a massive debate brewing amongst the Jewish people and they argued this every day. 
And here's the point. There were two schools of thought. Rabbi Shammai, Rabbi Hallel, two different crews. They fought all the time, and it was over the issue of divorce. They wanted to argue who was right. Rabbi Shammai said, according to the Old Testament, the only reason you can get divorced, according to Moses, is for physical adultery against you. And he had this hard line. Rabbi Hallel said, you can divorce your wife if you find someone cuter. Okay, and now which one do you think was more popular? Okay, so you had super liberal guy, super conservative guy, and they're trying to get Jesus embroiled in the controversy. And the phrase that he would use was for any and every cause. So he was trying to get him incited into the fight and go, who are you going to side with? Because that will make a lot more people hate your guts. So what did Jesus say? Jesus bounced over it, went past Moses back to Genesis. And look at this. Haven't you read? Oh, sorry. He said, uh, Mark says, what did Moses command you? Jesus asked them. And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So in other words, they're going to highlight their big dog, Moses. And do you realize how easy it was to get divorced in this context? If you were a Jewish man and you had grounds, the only thing you had to do was give her a certificate that said she was freed. And you walk up and say, peace be with you. Bye bye now. Walk away. There was no proceeding. There was no court. There was no nothing. By the way, ladies... You had no opportunity to divorce. That was completely against everything. So you didn't even have a choice. Only the guys did. And the guy could just walk up and divorce you just like that. No problem. So he's going, wait a second. How did this happen? Well, Jesus said, all right, you just cited Moses and said that he gave you the allowance to get divorced. Let me tell you what I'm going to say. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, they're no longer two, but they're one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What did he just say? He just blew everybody out of the water. He said, I don't care if you have legal grounds or not. It's rebellion. That's it. Period. Any divorce, anytime, anywhere. Violation. I don't care what you think your allowance is. No, I'm just going to tell you. Do you understand that when we're talking about allowances, we're talking about mercy? The fact that there's even mercy. But no, it's violated the original covenant. You see, the words that are used there is that he said, I've made a new covenant. I've joined them together, and I now hold the contract in my pocket. You're not allowed to take it out of my pocket. I'm God. You can't take it out of my pocket and break it. That's mine. So you're breaking my stuff. Don't touch it. So they fire back, and they're like, you can't say that. Moses said we had a right to. So they fire back at him. Why then did they say, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're trying to incite him again. Moses made us divorce. (laughs) What did Jesus say? No, Moses permitted you to get divorced. That's different than commanding you. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Then Mark adds this. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Hmm. Why would he say that? Because we're in a different culture now. Old Testament women didn't have the right. New Testament women had the right. He said, so by the way, it flies both ways, ladies, gentlemen. Here's what I need you to understand. We've already addressed divorce back in chapter 5. Matthew hits it twice. You think that's a problem in the church? Yeah, it's huge. Do you understand that we're 
perhaps majority divorced here in this church. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place. Do you realize that I have the ability to crush my wife? Do you realize I have a heart that is rebellious enough to cheat on my wife? Do you get that? Do you understand that I don't know if I will be married the rest of my life? It is only by the grace of God I've been married this long. I do not pretend to be anything else other than that. And I will work my tail off to try to make my marriage healthy. Do we fight? Yes, we do. You better believe we do. We are real human beings married to one another. So I'm not pretending that I have anything over anybody else. I'm still young. I can do a lot of stupid stuff coming up. Okay? I have no idea. But what I need us to understand about the issue of divorce is this. When you start playing Pharisee loophole games, you're out of line. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean sometimes people are trying to use this kind of stuff to get out of marriages. They're trying to find in any way they can to get out of marriage where God's still going to be proud of them. No. No, that's the wrong question to ask. Then the other ones are using it to batter the other person over the head. This is what they say. Hey, you know what? You want to leave the marriage? That's fine. I'm not filing for divorce. God hates divorce. So there. Really? You really want to say that? Because let me tell you what God hates. God hates the fact that you've been treating your wife like garbage for 25 years. Don't shove that off on her and try to manipulate her like that. Don't throw this whole God hates divorce. God hates the way you're acting. If that's really what we're talking about. See, we're asking the wrong questions. The real question is, what does God want so badly? He wants us to treat each other with respect and kindness and love. That's what he wants. He doesn't want us arguing about how we can get out and why the other person's a psycho. I know that. God knows that. But the point is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to be healthy? How are we going to work through things? How are we going to set proper boundaries? I'm not telling you that you have to be a doormat. I'm telling you that you're married to another human being and they're broken just like you. And it's amazing that any of us are married at all. Please make sure that we don't become pharisaical on this stuff and run around and harm other people. That's not our job. We must love people deeply. I'm not telling you that we're going to throw out truth. And no, I'm not a counselor of divorce. I don't counsel that way. But you know what? I'm also not going to say that because you're divorced, God no longer loves you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Let's move on. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry at all. Wow. They're like, if I can't break up with her, game over, man. I don't even want to get married. Which is great because Peter's already married. He's like, shut up. What? Is, I'm already married. Okay. Some of the guys are single. Some of the guys were married. And Jesus replied, I get it. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For some are eunuchs before, because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. Others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one that can accept it should accept it. What's his point? His point is sometimes people are born with this idea that they don't want to get married and they don't want to have sex. And the whole idea, the concept is, you know what, that's way down the list. I don't care. I'm just going to be about me and God. He said, right on. Paul took this on in 1 Corinthians 7, said, great, singleness is awesome. And sure enough, he said, some of those were made by men. You guys understand what a eunuch is made by man? That's a man that's been castrated. Because in the old school days, when you had kings that had harems, and you had a guy that was watching over the harem, 
You made sure no funny business was going on, so you did a little bit of surgical work on him. Right? He said, I know there's a bunch of reasons why people aren't getting married, but I want to tell you, if you can accept it, walk with me. Was Jesus married? No. Was Paul married at the time that he wrote? No, he wasn't. Two good examples. Then the little children were brought to Jesus. What a weird concept. We just went from divorce, eunuchs, to little kids. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. Luke and Mark say people were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. But when the disciples saw this, they rebuked those who brought them. When Jesus saw that, he was in, in he was <laughs> almost messed up there. He was indignant is what I was trying to say. Jesus, Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. And when he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. What do you think that was for? Not only was it to just love on the kids and to show them value and to stop all ministry just to focus on them, but there's something deeper. When you just finished talking about divorce and then he grabs a bunch of kids, what do you think the highlight is? Really, is it all about you guys? Is that what this is about? It's just about whether or not you're happy. Is it about whether or not... Is this not also involving other lives that are precious to me? And he begins to spin things in a much broader context. And then, this story. As Jesus started on his way, Mark says, a certain ruler, Luke says, ran up and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Is that a weird question? What one good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Ooh, doesn't sound right. Something's off. So Jesus is going to play that game. Why do you call me good? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. No one's good except God alone. You don't think I'm God, do you? Clearly the man doesn't. All right, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? What a dumb... He's like, I only gave you ten. Really? We're editing already? It's... <laughs> It's not a big, all right. Well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. All right, you know those? Which ones did he quote? Side note. There's ten commandments. He, he, he quoted five. Do you know which ones? The second half. Why is that important? First half is about how you treat God. Second half is about how you treat people. What's the problem with this man? His love for people. So Jesus is going to push him to the wall. Uh, teacher, the young man declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. He's the rich what ruler? Rich, young ruler. So he's like, I've kept him like for the last two years. You're like, wow, good job. What do I still lack? Okay, he's obviously a Pharisee at heart. He's all about rules and regulations. People are nothing to him. He's like, I've done all the rules. I've got it. I've got the regulations down. What do I still lack? Obviously, I'm missing something. Jesus looked at him, Mark said, and loved him. You won't get that in Matthew. Mark added in that he loved him. He's like, I like this kid. You still lack one thing, he said. If you want to be perfect, isn't that what your goal is, buddy? You want to be perfect, right? If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, a young man's face fell. He went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. 
when you give to the poor, are you giving to an institution or are you giving to people? He said, really? You're so good at loving people? Really? You kept all these commandments, huh? How's that hard? All right, let's try it. Let's try it. Okay, give everything you have to someone else. How much do you love them? I'm out. He said, that's what I thought. You don't love people. Come on. You're all about this standard of righteousness and you're going to follow the rules. You don't love people. If you love people, you do something different. You didn't. The man walked away. And Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? Because they bought into the cultural idea that wealth means blessing. The Jews taught that if the more wealthy you were, the more God was proud of you. So if the ones that were closest to God, the rich couldn't get saved, how were they, the poor, ever going to get saved? And Jesus said, you're right. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Meaning, yeah, if you keep trying to do it yourself, it ain't going to happen. You let me do it, we're in. Peter answered him, well, we've left everything to follow you. Okay, so this rich young ruler here, once again, Peter being a loudmouth. This rich young man's gone away sad while he's walking away because he couldn't give everything he had. Peter's like, we did. We did. Did you hear that, dude? We give up everything. What will there be for us? He asked Jesus. Wow. That's in pretty rough. You'd assume that Jesus is about to beat him down. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What is it that's separating you from the love of people? Is it your desire to be the greatest? Is it you're so insecure and you want to be the best so much that you exclude people and draw towards people that make you feel better about yourself? What is it? Is it the love of the praise of men and women in your life that you alter how you live and Jesus isn't first? What is it? That keeps you away from other people. Is it money? Is it competition? Is it that you've marginalized huge groups of stereotype, like children in your life, that they're not useful? No matter what it is, you've got to break through that. You've got to move beyond that. We must love people passionately. We must care about what they care about. You must hear their stories. You must cry when they cry and laugh when they laugh. As long as you look at life through a plexiglass window with no heart attachment to the people on the outside, you have not yet walked in Christianity. We must love people and move through those boundaries and obstacles and quit putting our agendas first. Be compassionate, be moved, and look at people through the lenses of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's close.
Heavenly Father, thank you for a reminder of how far you will go to come get us. May your mercy, your grace, excite us to do the same. That as you have forgiven our debt, may we forgive those who have harmed us. Just as you have loved on us, may we lavish that love on other people. For Jesus, may we be the distribution house of your compassion and love to your people. In Jesus' name we pray.